Hello, I'm Gail. Hello, I'm Catherine. We're delighted to welcome you to today's episode. Today, we are excited to talk with Dr. Lydia Kame Manning. Lydia is 42 years old, and she's our second guest in our Advocates for Women Aging series. Dr. Manning is a gerontologist, educator, and entrepreneur with a wide range of experience in the field of aging. She's a professor of gerontology at Concordia University in Chicago and the College of Graduate Studies. Lydia received her PhD in social gerontology from the Department of Sociology and Gerontology at Miami University and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Duke University's Center for Aging. Her expertise lies in complex issues related to aging and well-being. Her research focuses on resilience with additional interests in religion and gender. Lydia also works as a gerontological consultant where she views products, services, and programs with a gerontological eye in an effort to help businesses and organizations be age-friendly. Additionally, she's a certified dementia practitioner and an end-of-life doula. Lydia, welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for having me. We are delighted. There's so much we want to discuss with you. And uh, your interests are so wide-ranging. They really are. And, and so will you please tell us why you chose this path? In terms of gerontology and, and my love for aging and older adults, um, you know, I will say often that I'm not sure I chose gerontology, but I feel like in some ways it chose me. Um, and, and what I mean by that, uh, for me, right, my, my work in the field of aging and with older adults is much more of a vocation um, than it is a career or a job. It really feels like a calling. And it probably all started, um, I think, when Gail and I were speaking before, I was telling her the story that uh, I grew up uh, as an only child, and my mother was a long-distance caregiver in the um, late 80s and 90s. And uh, my grandmother was in a nursing home. And so as a result, I spent a lot of time in the nursing home uh, with my grandmother and uh, many of the residents and people became my friends and my um, (laughs) co-conspirators. And so I just just had an appreciation for I think older adults at a really young age and also learned pretty early on that if you sat at the table with the older ladies, and you were younger, you would get away with everything. <laughs> and you would also have a finger on the pulse in terms of what, what good gossip was happening. Um, so I always appreciated being at the older adult table as a kid. And then realized in college uh, that I could actually study. There was a thing called gerontology and I could study aging um, and you know go about the world and ask questions. I used to get in a lot of trouble for asking questions. And that's one too many questions, that's enough. And now I laugh. I, you know, I get paid to ask questions as a researcher about aging, so it feels like a dream job. Um, but yeah, for me, it was just I, a pretty pretty formative experiences early on as a kid um, that helped me develop an appreciation for aging and the process of aging and for older people themselves. And if you talk to other gerontologists, um, that's a common narrative, right? I, with my students when they come into the program, I will often say how, how and why, where, you know, how did you find this program? How did you discover gerontology? And it's pretty similar. They'll have had a formative experience early on. 
um, and then realize, oh, I can, I can, this is a career path. This is a field of study and expertise and I can, you know, be a part of it. Right. And you seem to have so many interests, as we said earlier, in different areas of the gerontology discussion mm -hmm. or aging discussion. So can you expound on those a little bit? Um, I've, I've spent the last, you know, I guess my first research project was in 2004. Um, so it's been, you know, 15 plus years of trying to understand um, spiritual lives and experiences of people as they age. And so that's been a pretty common um, core in my work, even in, in moments where I've moved away from it, where I've taken time out to focus on resilience. The spirituality and resilience piece is so in so intimately connected, it's hard to tease them apart for people. Um, so I've just, I think I've always been interested in sort of the um, experiences uh, that sometimes are a little bit harder to measure and maybe a little bit harder to predict and that tend to be pretty multidimensional. Um, and I think spirituality is one such, I mean, you can measure it, obviously there are measures, um, but I think I've always been intrigued by, by people who are seeking and people who are trying to make meaning of their lives um, and the stories that they tell um, in that process. So Lydia, uh, yeah. uh, for people, sometimes people think of research as being data-driven and quantitative, and I suspect that is not how you approach at least this topic about spirituality and resilience. Tell us a little bit about how you go about the, the um, So I'm, I'm trained as a qualitative researcher. I can operate obviously in both paradigms and I've done mixed methods, but I really appreciate the um, qualitative approach in that, you know, we, we fundamentally believe that meaning is co-constructed, right? We co-construct our realities and that, you know, you can, you can ask questions to dig deep, to kind of jump in the in the brains and in the lives and experiences of people, um, and if you're if you ask the right questions, um, you know they'll their narratives will will withhold rich rich data, right? That as qualitative researchers, we're trained to make sense of and to code and to arrive at themes and understandings. Um, so I'm always in, in again trying to understand and describe um and you know capture lived experience i'm not necessarily interested in predicting or um, measuring um, as i would be if i were in the quantitative realm could you give us an ex an example of how that unfolded with someone what what you what maybe you found um, in terms of like just asking questions asking the the right questions who yeah i mean i you know, I go back to some of my dissertation research. I, I wanted to understand the spiritual lives of women in advanced age, the oldest old. So all my participants were 85 plus. Um, and I spent quite a bit of time trying to understand how they define spirituality for themselves um, and the role that it played in shaping their lives, particularly as they were looking at less years on the earth as opposed to more. And I just was struck by how so many of these women talked about their spiritual belief and their framework. And it was different for different people. Obviously, the people had different views and different worldviews. Um, but a common thread was that they garnered strength um, from their spiritual belief and in many ways felt like their spirituality helped them collect resilience over the life course. And so their ability to really be able to survive and to bounce back and to even grow from just some profound tragedy um, was, was a theme that I wasn't 
I wasn't anticipating there to be so many resilience narratives embedded in those spiritual life reviews. Um, but those are indeed what the data yielded. Is that what then put you on the resilience path? Yep. I wanted to understand oh, what, okay, what is this? What is this? What do people mean by resilience and how are we talking about it and how are we experiencing it? And how are we comparing our, our past self to our present self and to our future self in a, in a, you know, in an effort to kind of, to withstand hardship and struggle. So is that it, led me down that path. Is it, um, so is it possible for people who are not particularly resilient to gain it? I, th I think so. And, but part of it depends on how you define resilience, right? Um, and, you know, of course, then the important part of being a qualitative researcher is owning your own biases. Um, so given the work that I've done and the, the data that I've collected, um, I view resilience as a process and as an identity more, as, more so than a personality trait or an outcome. So if you asked, I'm sure if you asked a psychologist who were, you know, maybe wedded to some of the, the larger personality traits and certain things being fixed, I don't know that they would have the same answer. But I view resilience as a process that can be learned. Um, I think it's it's like a, having a muscle, right? If you lift the weights and you do the work, you can increase your muscle. Um, and I think the true, this thing can be said for resilience. You can build your resilience muscles. Mm -hmm. And part of it's about coming up against adversity um, and making sense of it. But then I think having a, having a protocol or a formula that you, and, and that you activate to help, help you navigate. And I think that's learnable, which yeah. gives me hope. <laughs> gives me hope too. <laughs> sure. And I think we're all right now, I mean, we're all building our resilience muscles given the current state of COVID-19 and, and where we are. And it looks different for different people and different places and in different socioeconomic status and, and social structure. But I think we're all being presented with some, you know, some, some pretty, some pretty adverse conditions um, for which we are required to adapt and, and, and exercise resilience. Mm -hmm. well, Lydia, what's involved in being a gerontologist consultant? A, uh, consultant, gerontological. a consultant. Um, I get to show up on the scene and help people sort through aging in a meaningful way. And some of it is about, like, for example, technology. I've worked with technology companies, helping them to um, create, you know, platforms or create devices or create technological experiences for people. Um, knowing what we know about aging and, and the data, helping them to really understand the older profile um, that they're designing and working for. So it depends on, I've worked, you know, I've worked with individuals and helping them put a, put a life plan together, um, mm -hmm. you know, how they want to map out their late life and what they want, what they want that to look like um, and more of legacy work and generativity work. Um, it just depends on, you know, who, who needs some, some aging expertise and what do they want to do with it? And do they want to design programs? Do they want to design products? Do they want to design their life? Um, it just depends. But I think given that uh, gerontologists have a unique skill set, um, we're well positioned to help people think through aging, both the uh, experience of aging at the individual level and then the larger experience of aging. You, you talk about business and, mm -hmm. and you talk about, I've heard you talk about age segregation mm -hmm. and that it's detrimental. And so how yeah. do the two, uh, how do they 
um, link up or connect. Link up. Yeah, connect, right. Yeah, I think, you know, when I say, when I say age segregation is detrimental, I think about more from um, like a societally, right, societally at large. And what I mean by that, I think we've, we've gotten very good at compartmentalizing people into chronological age segments, right? And so I always, even in my own life, I encourage um, my girlfriends or my good friends or or even when I look around, if I feel like all of my my peers are my roughly my same chronological age, I start to get nervous. Right? I'm like, okay, what do we know about intergenerational living and programming? That's good for us, right? It's good for us to have um, social networks and um, social supports and experiences of, of people in our convoy, right, of social supports who are not necessarily our same age. Um, I think if you, again, if you look at the data, um, on average, controlling for all other variables, mostly, um, people report better, better outcomes, better health outcomes, um, higher levels of satisfaction if you, if you give people an intergenerational experience, right? Not only older adults, but also younger adults, too. Um, so we know that, with, that age integration is good for us, but yet we live in a world where we, um, I think, privilege age segregation, right? If you look at kind of how we do long-term care and, you know, senior communities. And, and I get that not everybody wants to be in a young neighborhood and they don't want, you know, maybe small kids riding their bikes everywhere. But I, I do think there's, there's a danger in segregating because it creates this sort of otherness that I think is at the heart a bit of ageism. Right. So I see it all linked together. And in terms of business, I think, gosh, you know, how many companies or employers are just missing out on such crystallized intelligence and, you know, institutional memory and skill sets. And again, if we look at the data, we know older workers are our best workers. Um, but I think there's that ageism is a, is a slippery slope and I think it can cloud people in business. Um, so I think there's a lot to be said for intergenerational coalitions in, in, in practices and in business practices. And when I work with companies, I will, I go through, I do a Jero scan with them. And part of it is looking at their leadership and their employees and their voices around the table. And I, you know, when everybody's in their early thirties, I get worried, right? I think, where are your older you know, where are your older voices and workers and, and where are they here? And when, when you're helping, you know, make some of these decisions about products and programs. Can you give us a quick definition of crystallized intelligence? Yeah, crystallized. Uh, and I was just putting together slides for one of my um, classes at the undergraduate level. But fluid intelligence is about, you know, the ability to, to grab onto new tasks. And to learn new things and crystallized intelligence is almost that like body memory that we have that we you know like playing the piano or dialing the phone or riding the bike or putting on lipstick lipstick it's like you don't have to learn anything new it's like so crystallized you have to think about it and older adults are much better i mean they have higher levels of crystallized intelligence fluid intelligence and tend to be a little challenging based on a synapse firing and all kinds of hmm. complex cognitive um realities in the brain right right yeah i believe in the intergenerational discussion tremendously mm -hmm. and uh it, it as you're saying this it's making me realize why it is that i think so strongly about staying in a high-rise where i live now and staying there as long as i possibly can 
because um, I wouldn't want to be devoid of having these conversations with people of all ages. They enrich me. Yeah. I was uh, thinking about your story the, of your formative years. And as I, the older I get, the more I appreciate my upbringing where I was surrounded. I lived, we lived with my grandparents uh, and, and my great grandmother. So my great grandmother was my playmate. Oh, I love it. Right. So we <laughs> and, and just wonderful, wonderful memories of that and great appreciation yeah. for those stories around the table that you mentioned. Yeah. And you know, I, depending on where people are and their belief frameworks, for me personally, I feel like that children, um, small children and people who are advanced in age, uh, vibrate closer to the spiritual world at mm -hmm. some level. And I feel like there's well, some really natural, beautiful coalitions that for some of us in midlife are so, we're, we're so distracted <laughs> by our busyness that we sometimes can't, can't, tap into those frequencies as easily. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's mm -hmm. how I like to think about it. But. Really curious about your being an end of life doula, how, mm -hmm. you, how you moved into that and tell people about what that is. Um, so end of life doulas are people who are trained um, and some are certified depending on which organization you align with. I have not um, done my hours for certification yet, but I've gone through the training. Um, you are trained to provide non-medical, emotional, social, and spiritual support for somebody who is dying. And that can look very much, um, you can be working with a person who is dying six months prior to death or six hours prior to death. Mm -hmm. It depends on where you, you know, where they intercept with you um, in their process. Um, you know, there's a model that the that doulas, I trained through the um, INELDA, which is the International Association of End-of-Life Doulas. Um, and their model is very much about preparing people to do legacy work or summing up work with people, uh, hopefully a little earlier than the active dying process. So maybe a few months where you're helping people through art or through music or through aromatherapy or however, whatever meaningful way that they want to kind of sum up their their life and either give it to somebody pass it along to family members or just make sense of it on their own so it's married it's really about asking enduring questions and helping people make sense of things and feel like they're tying up loose ends um, they've also they also provide training for people to come in and do more of the active dying um, so you can sit bedside and be sit vigil with someone and their family. And usually they put just like a birth plan, you would put together a death plan where the person ideally would have some input about who they want around their bedside, what sounds they want, what smells they want, what they don't want. Mm -hmm. um, and you just really create, you create a space for people to have a ritual. I think in some places where we don't have a lot of ritual, um, and then you are also trained and equipped with the tools to come and do postmortem work with the family. So if there's, you know, like if somebody chooses to be cremated and, you know, they want to have a ritual or they want to do some sort of blessing way or something like that, you can work with the family to, you know, create an art project. Um, you know, again, it's about, I think, providing meaning and support at the end of life for the person who's dying and their loved ones. Mm. And how did I get interested in it? I, you know, I think I've um, 
given given who I am and my family, I've had experiences where I've been honored to be bedside at someone's death, um, people I've been close to. And in those experiences, I've watched something else happening in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always, always been sort of intrigued, like almost a little, I guess if I'm honest, almost a little having my own anxiety around death, Mm -hmm. but then also being very intrigued and sort of hearing, particularly when I interview people and depending on the interview and the subject matter, when I'm collecting data, um, older adults are pretty articulate. Usually the ones I've interviewed and talked to about not being anxious about death, maybe about the dying process, but not so much about death itself. Um, so I think my previous experiences with dying, my own anxieties, and then also realizing that as a gerontologist, if, if I'm not comfortable and I can't offer people end of life support, not that aging is dying, but when aging and mortality are so highly linked, I think there's some natural conversations about, you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? When are we going to do it? And how? Um, so I felt like it was important for me to have some of the training. Do you talk with us about your graduate students who I assume are range and age? Some of them are probably quite young. Mm-hmm. And if you do, how do they take this? How do they respond to the conversation? With death and dying? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody... For the most part, they tend to be very intrigued. You know, we actually had a death and dying book uh, course on the books several years ago. And when we revamped the master's program in gerontology, we removed it. Um, and I've had several requests for people who want to learn more and they want to be able to understand death in a different way. Um, so I'm actually thinking about revamping the curriculum and putting the course back in mm-hmm. uh, because I think, I mean, even given now, I mean, I, you know, it, if we can't have a conversation about mortality right now, what are we doing, <laughs> right? I mean, it, like I think about even even the larger social messaging about a ventilator, like please bring a ventilator, it's gonna solve everything, right? It's like if people understood, death is complex and hospital dying is even more complex, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I think it's important for people to have an awareness and I do think we have a growing death awareness. I mean, I, you know, there are death dinners and death cafes and, you know, the Illinois end of life options group. I mean, I, I think people are becoming a bit more articulate than they were say 25 years ago. Um, but I still think it's, it's, um, you know, it's not the most comfortable, comfortable conversation for people. I, I remember when I was 15, my grandfather died. He lived with us. And no one talked about what his disease was. He went to the hospital. I remember getting a phone call from my father that said, he's gone. And, and, and today, you know, like you, I've had the, the um, privilege of being bedside with several people close to me that have passed away. And um, I just think your conversation around this is so important and, and really, death and dying, it has to be part of the general conversation, especially for anybody who's going into the aging field. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to, to so fully live, you really do have to contemplate mortality and think about, you know, what that's going to look like. And, and then I think when helping people plan to reminding people that when you love somebody, you, you do the planning work and the hard work and the hard conversation piece before you go, right? Because it makes it easier for everybody when you're gone. 
Right. So it's an act of love, I think, you know, to have these conversations. I agree. I agree. You, you're, you're also a certified dementia practitioner. Mm -hmm. Talk about that whole field for a moment. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot, again, I think dementia um, and Alzheimer's in terms of conversations are very much in the public discourse right now, too. And I think you can, you know, even here in River Forest, right, we and Oak Park, we have now um, dementia-friendly River Forest and soon-to-be dementia-friendly Oak Park. They're in the process of applying for their certification through the Dementia-Friendly America movement. So I don't know how much you know about DFA, but it's um really it it got it started in 2015. Um, Dementia Friendly America Alliance came together with some major funders, and the whole goal was to create dementia friendly communities across the country. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Raj Shah, who was at Rush, um, who is the D- Dementia Friendly Illinois. Um, he's in charge of that chapter. Mm-hmm. I heard him present m- multiple places for these communities. Um, and he will say that if in many ways, dementia friendly America, it, it, it spread, it spread like a, I mean, like wildfire, right. It started in really 2015 and here we are in 2020 and most every single state in the U S has a dementia friendly, um, chapter in place and people are actively putting together communities so Illinois has, I believe, 10 communities right now, um, River Forest being one of them. Oak Park will soon be designated. And the whole goal is to just raise a, raise awareness about dementia for people living with dementia, for their care partners, um, for businesses, for organizations. And it's multi-sectorial. So banking, finance, restaurants, parks wow. and rec, um, you hospitals, you name it. But the idea is that we go in and we train people in that sector and we give them the tools to be able to support somebody who's living with dementia, who comes in to receive services mm-hmm. or their family members. So maybe that's a restaurant. Um, I, uh, Al's restaurant in Oak Park mm-hmm. on Madison, there was an article in the um, Wednesday Journal not too long ago about, you know, they're naturally dementia friendly given that they are right across from Belmont. Um, so people will come over and they've developed little, little um, tricks, if not tricks, but they have a, a, a customer who sometimes will forget that they've paid their bill and they will come back up and try to repay. So they have now a little stamp where they just stamp paid on the ticket so that the person oh. who pays knows like, oh, I paid it. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to remember that I paid it. It says paid. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just little things sometimes make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a sensory screening at the Lake Street Theater of It's a Wonderful Life for the holidays in December and had about 30 people and their care partners, 30 people living with dementia. And it was, you know, we, we, it, was, it was beautiful. Everybody was there. We watched the film together. Um, the lights remained up a little bit, the house lights, so people could see and the sound wasn't so t- intense. It wasn't so loud. And, people talked and moved around and it was fine because, you know, we, we all had a time with the social sanctions that the theater would be lessened. Um, so it's, so, you know, it's so little, little things like that for dementia friendly communities. But, but for me, again, working, I think in my role as an educator um, and um, directing a master's program and a doctoral program, there's so many interests from students that are so wide ranging. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are very interested in cognition, dementia, and Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was more about, um, not that I imagine I'm going to be practicing in a, in a, you know, um, 
in a, in a space where I'm going to be caregiving or supporting or even directing care for people living with cognitive impairment or dementia, but I am going to be instructing and, and coaching students. So I feel like for me, it's always important to have, you know, my training yeah. be relevant and timely for them. Yeah. Wow. You have a very full plate. <laughs> you, yeah, it's you, cool. you teach, you do research, cool. you direct, uh, you direct uh, these graduate programs, you mm -hmm. consult, you yep. are an end of life doula. Have I missed anything? <laughs> no. And I will say my, my end of life doula practice. I mean, I'm, you know, again, those are skills and training that I have. And in, when I, when it's just about time, like I don't have the time to dedicate to doing the full blown, yeah. you know, I mean, you really have to be available, particularly people are going to die on their own schedules, right? Mm -hmm. right. Put them into a time slot. So, um, sure. but I have been able to at least, you know, hold death cafes and, and partner and work with other doulas mm -hmm. um, in the area. And there's quite a bit in the Oak Park mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. I've been to several of those. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's a community. So. Um, I wanted to ask if, about your research. Do you, uh, what's your current research project or projects? Um, I have been... Let's say I'm actually we're we're working on a grant right now, um, trying to understand from older adults' perspectives. Their part part of it is I've I've gone back to the religion and spirituality world, right? As as a research agenda, but but so if we know that for the most part we look collectively at communities of faith across the country and we look at the data, most of them are aging, right? And most of them are comprised of people in older demographics. And so I was, I'm curious, like how do people feel as an aging member in their respective community of faith, right? Do they feel supported? Mm -hmm. They feel like that their community of faith is offering them what they need spiritually as they age or even informationally as they age. Are they looking, would they look for services in their faith communities? And if so, are we missing something by not having more of a presence of uh, the aging network or the AAAs or the area agencies on aging? Like could that be a place of, of um, service dissemination? Um, so that's been an interest of late, really trying to understand from, from older adults' perspectives, their notions of support or lack thereof mm -hmm. in their community of faith. And then thinking if people don't feel supported or they, they want more opportunities for aging ministry. Um, and because I'm at Concordia and it's a Lutheran school, it's LCMS institution, there are certain realities, um, certain funders, right, that we, we work with. And so... Our, our conversation and our tone takes much more of a Christian feel. Mm -hmm. um, but I think about, you know, what are the opportunities for aging ministry and how could we create a program? Um, we're working right now, it's called the SAM program, which is Specialist in Aging Ministry. How could we create a certification process or a nice. toolkit to help people get this information so they can pop back into their community of faith and be that aging specialist. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So not just the clergy, but the uh, yeah, lady, congregation lady, members. Yeah, or somebody who yeah. you know has a natural interest, or maybe they've they're a retired social worker who's worked in aging their whole lives. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And they just here's a here's a here's a ready-made mm -hmm. toolkit that you can use for programming ideas or for you know, how to navigate certain things or working with caregivers or creating yeah. a dementia-friendly congregation or a dementia-friendly service or an age-friendly 
space. I mean, there's all, all kinds of different ways to think. About so is that an idea or are those, do those programs exist? Um, the SAM program, we received funding. So in addition to the master's program and the DAC program at Concordia, there, we also have an applied center for gerontology. Um, and I was lucky enough to secure funding when I first took the job to help build out that center. Mm. So um, a bulk of our funding comes from the Russell and Josephine Cott Charitable, Charitable Memorial Trust. Um, and through that, we've, we've garnered additional funding to create the Specialist in Aging Ministry program. So we're in the process of developing it. Um, and that's what has led me to data collection, right? So prior to that, I really wanted to understand how to develop something. I wanted to be able to meet the needs of, of people. So what better way to understand that than to kind of boots on the ground, go out. And right. Will that program be face-to-face -face or online or a combination? Um, are, we are going to pilot it. And we'll do two pilots, one in Florida and one, um, one near Naples and one in Minneapolis, because that's where we have contacts. So that'll be face-to-face. Um, but I think given, given that we do so much online education and programming, I can, mm -hmm. it makes sense to have it be available online. That way people can, they don't have to travel. Yeah. Um, or we don't have to travel to them. So, hmm. so that's in the process. Exciting. I have some prospects for you. So let me know when it's going to be okay. online. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I will. We are, we are, as I said, we're, we're in the development phase now. So wonderful. Um, yeah. hopefully sooner rather than later. So. So yeah, that's been, you know, back in the, in the questions of um, support and, you know, how does it feel to age in this community of faith? You know, are your needs met? Are they not? Those are, those have been my questions of late. Mm -hmm. nice. Considering that a good proportion of our listeners are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, is there anything that you have to leave them with that might uh, give them food for thought? You know, I don't like this. It's so in the it's so in the public way, but this this successful aging, right, is a term. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the history, you know, it's like it was a concept divided or developed by researchers Rowan Kahn back in the '90s, and it's this idea that you have to have minimal cognitive impairment, minimal physical impairment, and you know, basic like health, wellness, and life satisfaction, and some resources to be aging well. And so I think, uh, you know, I, I look around and I, I think about the people that I know and who I talk to, who I work with, who I research, and I think about happiness. Mm -hmm. um, and there seems to be, despite other physical limitations or even potential, you know, or even cognitive declines, right? I mean, I think people, when, when they have a sense of meaning and they have a sense of purpose and they feel valued, I feel like that in many ways supersedes some of these other sort of ingredients that we feel like we need to be aging well. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So I think cult continuing to cultivate a sense of purpose and, um, you know, being grateful. If you look at the data on gratitude and forgiveness, yeah. mm -hmm. those are pretty powerfully predictive variables for late life satisfaction and positive health outcomes. Um, so, you know, I think, I mean, I, I tend to think about, I, you know, what's the wisdom that the listeners can bestow on me? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to wait until I'm 82 to have to figure right. it out. You know? right. I think about, I mean, we look, look, if you look at the happiness data, data in the literature, people on the, on the later life upswing, like in their 70s, um, are the happiest. 
right? And so it's like, that's, that's hopeful to me. Yeah, I read uh, something recently in research reports that women uh, in their later years are the happiest. Yeah. Across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's, it's something startled me, but come into on our own as women where we're like, okay, enough. Like we've festered enough about this. I've worried about what the neighbors mm-hmm. thought for long enough. And then here I am. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I've arrived. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wish I would be around when you're my age, 78, so that I could see how your path, where your path has taken you. Yeah, and hopefully, I, it'll, who knows what'll, you know, the, who knows what'll, the, the many roads that'll, that'll present, or I don't know. You're doing wonderful work, and we're just, we're really thrilled that you spent this time with us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for doing your amazing work. I think there's something so beautiful about capturing people's experiences and these narratives, and particularly for women, you know, as they age, and I think it's lovely. Thank you. Thanks so much. So thank you, Lydia, for joining us today. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Please share your thoughts on our Facebook group at Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined. Become an active participant in our community. And join us at our Zoom events, access our weekly Wednesday podcasts. And if you know a vital woman over 70 who would be a great guest, please recommend her to us at womenover70.com. 